lot of similarities and the way people would gather together, sing together, share food together, all those sorts of things, have, have community centers, all those kinds of things were, were really similar. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. Appalachia Meets World, it's Will. And Neil. Neil. What up? How goes it? Man, it goes, you know. Chickens laid a bunch of eggs today, so, you know, the always, eggs is always good always down here in 606. Speaking of, did you go to the festival? Oh, that's why I mentioned chickens. The World Chicken Festival? The World Chicken Festival is this weekend, man. Lots of how was it happenings? It was good, you know, a hundred thousand people or so. No, I was just kidding. What a hundred thousand, but pretty good, pretty decent crowd. Well, good deal, man. The festival is always uh, you know, the world chicken festival is always a time when people can get together. Yeah, right. light light was on local light, I guess, was on London for a weekend, so it's all good. We had lots of activities going on running here and there with all the children around my place. Yeah, and we've talked about the importance of festivals before, and uh, that's a good one in London. Yeah, it's uh, gone 25 years, I think, we've talked about before. So yeah. you know, not quite like the Kentucky Mountain Laurel Festival with the, with the long-standing tradition of over 100 years, but it'll get there. Yeah, in about 75 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, exactly. Which, by the way, shout out to our dad, turned 75 this past week. Yeah, Johnny. Shout out to uh, my baby who turned one, my dad who turned 75. So Same day. Yep, same day. What's going on in your neck of the woods, man? Downtown this past weekend, they had a food truck event all day long uh, out on the square, some music. Did they pay their taxes? <laughs> <laughs> no, food trucks did not pay taxes. <laughs> then we had the farmer's market, the uh, weekly farmer's market on Sunday, which... Mm -hmm. Is always well attended. And then uh, we're, we're starting to get into, there are a few houses around me that have already decorated for Halloween. Oh my gosh. Yeah, starting to get into the uh, fall, turned cold here a little bit, the fall, the Halloween spirit. I said, oh my gosh, but my wife's already decorated our, inside of our house too. <laughs> <laughs> I did put some mums out this weekend. So, you know, once the, that fall cold night starts rolling in i start thinking about mums and so i got six mums and put them all around so you know nice are you uh dressing up this year man you know i will i know always oh. an exciting time always I don't, exciting to hear what you're going to be yeah i don't uh i don't have it just yet but when i do you know we might we might throw a picture or something up on the on the social media platform not going to give it away yet no man, that's not what we do down here in Appalachia. You know, it's good. You gotta, you gotta come trick or treating if you want to see me. Well, you can post it on the new website, AppalachiaMeetsWorld.com. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking about that. You know, I'm sure uh, all of our listeners would love to see our Halloween costumes. So I can't wait. Thirty days. I got a big significant milestone coming up here in a few days as well. So yeah, you do. I was going to. I was going to wish you a happy birthday. Yeah, I think it's all downhill after this one. So the big, should I say it? I mean, everybody knows I'm going to be 30, dude. The big 3-0. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody knows I'm, I age well. 
<laughs> Good deal. You got big plans? Uh, yeah, we, we're going to slide out of town for a little bit. Without the kids, I hope. Without the kids, yep. Nice. That's going to be an adventure. Make sure you say a little prayer for your mother and my mother-in-law. Yeah, for watching the kids? Yeah, exactly. That'll be all the help they can get. So, Neil, about your picks this week. Oh, yeah. The Appalachia FBS. Yep, yep, I got them. You're we'll going to post, in. post we'll those rank. on the website? Yep, we'll post on post those on the site. Everybody can see. This past uh, weekend, they went 9-7, and seven, although yep. – you know, a couple of teams did play each other, so. A couple of teams canceled out. A couple of teams should have won and didn't. And, you know, one of the big dogs went down, too. So, uh, not a wonderful weekend for the Appalachian teams, but. Nine good seven still winning record. It's funny. I, I found myself this past weekend rooting for the Appalachia FBS. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> me Sometimes too. Sometimes you'll randomly watch a game and not care, but. I was watching one where there was an Appalachia FBS team, and then uh, it got me kind of excited. Yeah, it's pretty neat to think about. I've always kind of paid attention to folks close to us, but uh, even more so now. Oh, so the Ryder Cup was this weekend. Golf's, you know, on the world stage, uh, USA versus the Brits. USA came away with it. Lots of Americans, lots of Europeans who are tied into the golf world and this past weekend, the Ryder Cup happened in Wisconsin at Whistling Straits Golf Course and features a, a team of Americans and a team of uh, from Great Britain. You know, I, I think there's a lot of differences in folks from here and folks from there, but uh, golf is one of those sports that kind of brings us all together. I know on our episode tonight, our guest will has spent time in both places, and it should be interesting to hear his perspective. Yeah, definitely. He, you know, uh, just to touch on a little bit, you know, he spent some time comparing the coal mines in Wells with the coal mines in Eastern Kentucky of how they kind of have mimicked each other and how their cultures are kind of similar and uh, their experiences are similar in regards to the coal industries booming and then shutting down. It happened 20 years prior in Wells and it's kind of had the same or same cycle in eastern kentucky as well and he did a little documentary on that called after coal uh which talks about that i'm sure he'll talk about it he also wrote a book called after coal talking about that same experience and even though you know we're we're thousands of miles apart there are a lot of similarities uh between the two places yeah it's crazy to me how how similar little communities can be Uh, but i'm interested to to ask tom some some questions and get his take on on that and many other things. So I'm looking forward to this interview. Definitely, me too. Uh, so what do you think? We should get it started? Yeah, let's dial him up, bro. Welcome to Appalachian Meets World. Tonight we have Tom Hansel, who is a filmmaker, he's an author, he's also a sculpture artist. He began his career at Apple Shop, the Media Arts Center in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and is currently a teacher at Appalachian State, where he teaches Appalachian Studies. Amongst the work that he does, he also does some documentary work at Appalachia State. One of those documentary films was called After Coal, which compares really the coal fields of South Wales to the coal fields of Eastern Kentucky and kind of shows the similarities 
the differences and, and what has happened there a couple generations before what is happening in Eastern Kentucky. And we can, we'll talk about that with Tom, but we wanted to welcome him to the show. So Tom, thanks for being here. We greatly appreciate it and feel honored. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Honored as well. One thing to kick it off, this is something that we ask all our guests, kind of like our intro question. It's kind of uh, weird, as, but you know, <laughs> as you know, uh, Appalachia is big on history, big on tradition. One of the traditions that Neil and I have, our family, we have appetizers at the holidays. We always have a huge spread of appetizers usually more appetizers than the actual meal. What we wanted to ask you is, do you have a favorite appetizer or holiday dish? I'm always a sucker for sausage balls. That's, oh, yeah. that's what it comes down we to have for it. me. I'm always about the sausage. That's perfect. I love, I love it. That's one of my personal favorites too. And Are your sausage balls like drowned in, in sauce in a crock pot or are they just dry sausage? No, no. I like them with the, they're like Bis- breaded and cheesy. Bisquick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bisquick, but with the cheese melted in there. Yeah. And yeah. The, it's got like spicy breakfast sausage nice. and cheese yep. and biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with That's you, That's the way to do it. Uh, I was just going to say, my wife makes you, really You can good. use your fingers with them and you don't have to work. Like when they're in the sauce, you got to use a, a toothpick, toothpick and then you, you got to have a napkin. <laughs> yeah. I was just getting ready to say, my wife makes them really good and I like them because you can just pick them up and eat them. You don't have to be fancy with the toothpicks. Exactly. So. <laughs> I guess we want to kick it off. We kind of want to ask you about the documentary, but really, why did you want to create After Coal? I guess first, maybe you can talk a little bit about After Coal, but kind of our question is, why did you want to create that documentary, especially when you did? I think you created it in 2016. Is that correct? Yeah, the film was released in 2016. The book came out in 2018. Okay. And actually, I, I started on the, working on the project around 2011. And I actually had been thinking about that project, maybe even in my subconscious for, for you know, a decade before that. So the After Coal Project is not just a documentary film or a book, but it was kind of a, a set of community conversations that built on a histor- historic exchange between coal fields of central Appalachia and South Wales. So there were folks that had started that exchange all the way back in the 1970s, before my time. People like Helen Lewis and John Gaventa and Pat Beaver and, um, and many others had, had kind of moved people back and forth and, and started this conversation that I just became aware of in, in 2010 and started to, to build on. So really with the, what it came down to was it built on my experiences living in Eastern Kentucky and often doing uh, reporting or documenting issues around coal mining and particularly around strip mining and which were often contentious and emotional issues and that I knew people really well on both sides of. A lot of times they would ask the question in, in particularly around strip mine hearings, someone would say invariably, if we can't mine coal here, what else are we going to do? We can't mine coal. What are we going to do? Right. And n- nobody had a really good answer to that. <laughs> yeah. And and so I, you know, felt like that was a legitimate question, but we should try to figure it out because there was no denying some of the environmental and health issues of coal, but there was also no no denying the employment situation. And coal was such an important is to some still a little bit, not as much as it used to be, but still an important factor in the employment situation and the economy. So you can't deny that. And so the question is, if we can't mine coal, what are we going to do? And I think to answer that, to find a place where the coal mining shut down completely and figure out what people did 
that was kind of the, the idea. So, and I honestly, I, I went over there the first time I went to Wales, I thought, oh, well, I'll just figure out, you know, record what they did and it'll be the perfect solution. We'll just bring it right back to Eastern Kentucky and everybody right. will live happily ever after. <laughs> and, you know, of course it's not that simple. Part of what makes it interesting. But it's, it's really an incredible documentary. And like you said, there was, there was some groundwork that had already been done before you, you made the documentary. It, it shows all that through your film. One of the things that kind of struck me was, aside from the similarities that you see in both areas in regards to coal, was really the similarities around culture and this idea around independent communities, very strong communities. We, we, we've had episodes on in the past where we felt like maybe the unions kind of created that sense of community, but you kind of see that in South Wales too, which it happened a couple decades before anything happened in, in, in Kentucky. Is that something that you saw while you were there, while you were speaking to people in Wales, kind of this independent culture that was surrounded by or, or kind of grounded in community and family and, and very strong, tight, tight knit communities. Did you see that there too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of what really makes you feel at home is you're in these fairly narrow valleys and all the houses are right along the Creek, just like you see in Eastern Kentucky. They're often um, more built out of stone and much older and more sturdy in some, some ways than, than a lot of houses um, in Eastern Kentucky. But there was a lot of similarities and the way people would gather together, sing together, share food together, all those sorts of things, have, have community centers, all those kinds of things were, were really similar. And I would say when you say independent, I feel like they were, the communities were independent of I don't know if you want to call it, you know, in, in Wales, they think about it as almost being independent of England, because that's kind of the dominant culture in the British Isles and the dominant economic force in British Isles. And I think in Appalachia, we often think of ourselves as kind of being independent of cities or a, a New York or L.A. driven culture. And right. so that that kind of independence. Yes. But I think that independence can also be kind of thought of as individual independence. Yeah. And I, and I think there is that. I mean, it's part of the American psyche anyway, and the, and the myth. But I think in both places, there's also an interdependence. And that's where the community comes in and the sense of community that um, when things get tough, you look to your neighbors to get, get your back as opposed to taking it all, taking it, you know, as a lone, lone rider or something like that. Right. One of the things that I heard in the documentary was that one of the major differences, at least in regards to coal, was that the coal companies in Wales are publicly owned, whereas historically and, and obviously now the, the coal companies in Eastern Kentucky are privately owned. Did you see that difference uh, or, or how that difference played out in Wales? And was it was it a major topic that you thought about when you were shooting the documentary? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's a major topic that was discussed throughout this exchange. You know, in the early days of the exchange, I think a lot of the folks that were involved wanted it to be an exchange of working miners from both places. And they saw that the nationalized coal industry in Wales was a, a lot safer workplace. You know, they had really, particularly really strict black lung regulations uh, to prevent black lung. And so they wanted to kind of have more of an exchange to exchange some of those ideas about how you prevent black lung and make a safer workplace. So there is some of that. And then I think the other part of that legacy, I guess I should 
back up for just a second and say that when the coal mines were first developed in Wales, which would have been the 1800s, that was all privately owned. It was very similar to, to Appalachia. And it wasn't until after World War II, 1947, when all of the United Kingdom was trying to rebuild from, from being bombed out, that in order to rebuild, the only way to get that uh, enough capital was to nationalize key industries. So it wasn't just the coal industry, but the gas industry, steel industry, the auto industry at that time were all nationalized right after World War II, just so they could re the country could rebuild. Coal industry stayed, stayed nationalized until the 1990s when it gradually was privatized. Um, and kind of the turning point was this strike, uh, big national coal strike in 1984 and 1985, that the miners were fighting to keep the nationalized industry open and the government ended up shutting it down, closing the unprofitable pits and selling the profitable pits off to uh, private private companies. Of course, now there's I think there's one strip mine left in in uh, Wales and uh, none in the other parts of the UK. There's wow. there's really not much of a coal, and they've gone for you know a place a country that used to burn more coal than the rest of the world uh, has gone to being coal free for a month at a time as they're moving to more renewable sources of energy. Yeah, I, th there's the one quote, quote in the, it's not verbatim, but they essentially, one person in the documentary talks about how when they were going through this transitions that they should have thought about it as an opportunity rather than what do we do now after coal, which I thought found very interesting and very uh, thought provoking for, for that time. To that point, they also talked about while it was an opportunity that they still have challenges. What challenges did you see yeah. while, while you were there? Yeah. yeah, I would say that relative to the rest of the UK, coal still, I mean, Wales still has pretty high unemployment. Um, they have also struggled with uh, issues pretty familiar in Appalachia, like uh, prescription drug abuse. Um, alcoholism, and then also just the loss of youth, that a lot of youth want to go to urban areas or the south of England, the more, more wealthy areas where there's often more opportunity. So I think some of those challenges are, are very much similar. I will say, just to circle back around to the legacy of the nationalized industry. So even though the industry is not nationalized anymore, industry barely exists, the fact that a lot of that land was owned by the government made it easier to reclaim it and to protect the water supply. So I think what you end up doing is you've got a lot a lot less water problems than you do in central Appalachia, where it's often really hard to find clean water for fishing or swimming or particularly drinking. And you know I've been hearing about Martin County, Kentucky's problems just maintaining their water system. And I know certainly from uh, living in Whitesburg that that water system was always a challenge. <laughs> so uh, there's lots of boil water advisories. And so you, you don't have that level in Wales because the government was invested in that land and made sure that that land was properly reclaimed. That, that's so interesting. We have so many ownership issues throughout Eastern Kentucky because of coal. It's, yeah, it's so inter interesting to hear you say that. Another interesting part of that legacy is, I mean, it's not directly related to coal, the coal industry, but it's related to that history of nationalization, is that they still have a nationalized healthcare industry in the, in the UK. And while you might think, well, what does that have to do with coal or energy or economic transition? If you think about uh, being an entrepreneur and taking a risk to open up your own business, hire some employees, even if it's a restaurant, 
right? You're going to need to provide healthcare. And that's often a prohibitive cost. And if you take that cost away, all of a sudden you're freed up to do a lot more business and to take a lot more risks. Of course, you also need clean water to run a restaurant too. Right. So they, <laughs> they go hand in hand, but you'll kind of hear that's kind of, um, you know, the two big takeaways I've really had from that project is it's uh, clean water is really important and good healthcare are really important when you're talking about rebuilding communities. I also noticed in, in, in the film, put a lot of focus on how open or or not the, the culture is. And, and you really highlighted higher ground uh, in, in Harlan, Kentucky, and, and the work that they do there with their theater program and, and the things that they are doing. A lot of the documentary also talked about the music, the similarities of music and how that played a part in, in the cultures there. Can you talk a little bit about Higher Ground and why you wanted to focus so much on it in this documentary and kind of how music played a, a large part as well? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was it's a challenge, this issue of, of transition from coal in Appalachia is still new. So Higher Ground was is a group for people who aren't familiar. It's a Higher Ground of Harlan County is the official name. They uh, do community theater and community art projects um, based around the Southeastern Kentucky Community and Technical College in Harlan County, Kentucky. And have done a series of plays. And in the documentary, I followed, I think it was the fourth play called Fog Lights. It was a play that was launched in 2013 and kind of followed that from the beginning to the end, because a lot of it is intergenerational. So there were older folks that had been coal miners, interracial. So there was some of the legacy of African-American coal miners that often gets overlooked, as well as legacy of you know youth of color um, that are in Appalachia that often get, get overlooked in kind of the media stereotypes the region. So I thought that was important to highlight. And then there were real questions of, you know, what do we do? And there were folks that had either worked in the coal industry, were currently invested in the coal industry, as well as folks that were involved in fighting some of the problems, whether it was health or environmental problems that the coal industry had, had caused. And what I found was that that kind of a, a cultural space a space where people got together and were singing together and working together became a place where some of the, I wouldn't say all the issues were solved, but a lot of the issues were brought to light instead of just hidden and not talked about. I mean, how many times have you all been to, I mean, we all go to family gatherings, right? And you talk, or there's only certain things you can talk about, right? At those right. family gatherings right. or at the, at the church gatherings and the certain things, you know, you're just not supposed to talk about. Yeah. And this higher ground, I feel like, was a safe space because they were brought up in a kind of a curated and artistic way, in a way that you were kind of expressing yourself, but expressing yourself in a way that was also putting yourself in a place where you had to listen to somebody else express themselves. And I felt like that was really interesting, you know, and that literally people sometimes had to harmonize, right? Even if they didn't always agree, they still, in their singing as a choir, had to find a way to work together and, and sing in harmony. And I feel like that's a a really good metaphor and also just really good practice for, for working together on a community level on a very hyper local micro um, and that's what made me interested in, in higher ground I'd, I'd known many of those folks from from when i was living in, in eastern kentucky and um had respected their work for a long time but it was really nice to be able to kind of follow a play from the beginning to the end yeah it was, it was it really neat how you put it into the documentary i i it was robert geick he, he wasn't leading it then was he or was he 
Yeah, he was at that time. He since stepped away and become a full-time author. Um, But at that point, he was still leading it. I think now they've got a team of of three that are leading it. Brandon, Sunny Gent, and I'm trying to think of the other. Alexia Alt still involved in it. One or two other folks that I'm losing their names right now. Um, But but I've known Robert for years. He, He and I actually worked at Apple Shop together. Oh, cool. Back in the early 1990s. We spoke before we started, you are originally from Dayton, but having lived in Whitesburg for so long and having now also living in Appalachia, you understand the stereotypes that Appalachia or the misconceptions that people have of the region. Is that similar in Wales? I know you mentioned how Wales kind of is independent from the UK or considers themselves. Are the stereotypes similar there because they have this mining tradition? Sometimes miners are looked at as less, but did you see the similarities there throughout the country? I mean, like like most of the exchange, there's some similarities and there's some differences. So certainly uh, Wales and to some degree, I think Scotland too, um, which also has a rich coal mining heritage, are kind of viewed from England, from, you know, particularly a London-centric point of view as kind of being out there, out there in the wilderness where the wild people are that, you know, are manual laborers and, and living in hills and maybe a little bit uncivilized. So there's that. And I would say the other part of, of Wales is, although coal mining is an really important part of the history of Wales, it's mostly concentrated in the southern third of Wales. And the, the northern third is uh, really beautiful and mountainous. The Snowdonia Mountains are there. There's a national park there, but it's also you know, wild and out there. It's wilderness. So in some ways, it's kind of the inverse of central Appalachia and southern Appalachia, where you know if you come a little bit south from the coal fields and get into the Blue Ridge or the Smoky Mountains, it's a little bit higher elevation and, and wilder. And that's a similar shift from South Wales to North Wales. But I do think that from kind of you know mainstream British culture would see Wales as kind of a a quaint rural culture um, yeah. with quaint traditions, folk traditions and folk mining and uh, coal mining is an important part of those folk traditions. And so you can see a lot of parallels with Appalachia that a lot of, in a lot of cities, people kind of think of it as this quaint rural culture with banjos and, and dulcimers and coal miners and quilts, you know, <laughs> right, right. I, and, I and they my... all are there, right? It, I mean, there's some truth to it, but there's a whole right. lot more there that, that right. people don't often will miss or overlook. Exactly, which is kind of the point of this podcast. <laughs> so during this process, how many times did you go to Wales? How, how long were you there when you went? Can you give me a little bit of information about your travel times and just what all that entailed? Yeah, I would say the short answer is not long enough. <laughs> but the um, longer answer is I went there during production. I went there four times and stayed for about two weeks each time. Okay. There were sometimes that maybe I stayed a little longer, sometimes a little bit shorter. Yeah. But it but it was four different trips that were each about two weeks. The bulk of the filming was done during the first two trips, and then the last two trips I was actually showing clips. Were informed the editing, so I was editing and I would go and show clips in the communities that I filmed at and get their feedback and use that feedback to uh, to re-edit. I, I do the same thing in Appalachian communities. I think it's a way to make sure that you're not misrepresenting people is to sure. show show them what you've done before you show it to anybody else and right. use, the, use that feedback to improve it. Yeah. Is there anything, I know you've alluded to some of it already, is there any one thing that you would say that we have the most in common uh, as Appalachians with 
uh, people in Wales. That that community, that sense of community, and and I think I would include music within the community. But those are two things that really lasted. In, in my opinion, those made are lasting. Those are two of the greatest qualities that Appalachians uh, as a whole uh, seem to unite behind. So that's uh, comforting for me to hear you say that. Uh, is there anything that just sticks out in your mind that makes us very, very much different from people in Wales other than the way we talk? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that's, that's a big one. <laughs> and, 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 you know, there's the uh, tradition of Welsh language. Um, so it's not even the, the accents in English, <laughs> in, in the English language. It's the, there's a whole nother language in, in Wales that informs it. But, uh, but I also think that there's, that the labor movement was so strong in Wales um, that, you know, they actually have a political party that's called the Labor Party that is still, I think they're losing some of their grip on Wales, but they, you know, ruled Wales you know, almost with an iron fist for, for a long time. And although we've always had a mine workers union that it, at times has been very powerful, it's never been as powerful. It's never had its own political party, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, never been on um, that level. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's another um, important difference that for people to keep in mind. You know, not to not to shift gears here, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do now at App State? Yeah, sure. I uh, teach Appalachian studies and documentary studies. We've got. Uh, Master of, Masters of Arts in Appalachian Studies. So it's a small graduate program that I do most of my teaching in that uh, looks at history and culture of the region. And I work with students to document that and work with community organizations as much as possible um, to enrich the region. And I also do documentary workshops with um, kind of across campus with groups. You know, I've even was actually just meeting with a fellow from biology and a group from the New River Conservancy today that they want to document some of their efforts to uh, protect the water quality along the New River. So I do do stuff like that. And I, and I sit in a lot of meetings. That part I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, what's next for Tom Hansel? Is that is that what you're working on now, the work with the New River? Yeah, I'm actually working in a, on a long-term project about the New River, which if you're not familiar, starts right here near Boone. And actually, I have our little farm that I live on here is on the North Fork of the New River. It flows all the way through out of North Carolina through Virginia. So it flows north and into West Virginia, where it's the New River National Park on the New River Gorge there. And then it um, eventually joins the Kanawha River and goes by Charleston, West Virginia and hits the um, Ohio River at Point Pleasant, home of the Mothman. (laughs) So I'm I'm kind of following it downstream and I've been you know, starting this project just by doing experimental films. I've, I've literally picked up uh, trash, plastic and fishing line out of the river and taped it to old film strips and, and taped moss there and kind of made a film out of that. I've worked with a photographer to do uh, photograms of things that we've pulled out of the river and made a film out of that. And I'm actually working on a film about another short film about a dam that was proposed to be built right on the Virginia, North Carolina line. Um, back in the 1960s, and a group of people organized to fight that and successfully defeated it and got a section of the river declared a national wild and scenic river. So these will all be eventually, in, in my mind anyway, we'll be doing a series of, of uh, screenings and musical events, and maybe even storytelling events, or poetry events with in collaboration with local artists and communities all along 
Riverside's. Get, give me a couple years to work up to that. <laughs> where a couple can, years uh, and, and, a, and a big budget <laughs> and we'll make it happen. Where, where can people find your previous work? I know I watched After Coal yeah. on uh, Canopy, but uh, oh, good. where, where good. else can people find your previous work? You know, my previous films, I, the one film before that I did was called The Electricity Ferry, which is about a fight over a power plant, coal-fired power plant in Wise County, Virginia. Um, and that's distributed through Apple Shop, which is A-P-P-A-L-S-H-O-P. So you can go to appleshop.org and find that film. My other film before that was called Coal Bucket Outlaw. So I followed uh, a couple of Kentucky coal truck drivers right around the 2000, 1999 and 2000, and followed them as they were trying to make a living and uh, figuring out that they had to break the weight laws to make a living and, and also looked at some of the issues and problems that were related to that. So that's Coal Bucket Outlaw. And that's also distributed through Apple Shop Films. I did another film about the um, development around the Brakes Interstate Park, which is right on the Kentucky-Virginia line, Pike County, Kentucky, and, uh, and Dickinson County, Virginia. Um, and that's called The Brakes of the Mountain. And that's um, also on Apple Shop Films. So you can go to either aftercoal.com or appleshop.org to, to find any of those films. What about just looking for Tom Hansel? How can I, how can I find you? Oh, I'm, I'm everywhere. <laughs> um, no, no I, I do. I have a website where you can actually see clips from those films. I don't have the whole films on there, but if you go to tomhansel.net and you can see some of the, some of the work, uh, little clips from this new river project on, under the short film clips. And we'll put some of these links in our show notes uh, so people will have access. Yeah, so, that'd be great. Yeah. So I know uh, we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, you grew up in, in, in Dayton, Ohio, but lived for 20 years in Wattsburg, Kentucky. Being from the mountains myself, the mountains of eastern Kentucky, is there anything that you just absolutely really, really, really miss about Wattsburg? And if so, what is it? And what would you go back and do one last time? Oh man, you know, honestly, right now there's actually a, there's a film shot that used a lot of the higher ground folks. Um, it's called uh, The Evening Hour. And it's a narrative film, not a documentary film, but a, a feature length narrative film directed by Braden King that um, they shot just before the COVID shutdown 2019. And it's just premiering. Uh, it'll actually premiere in Louisville tomorrow night. And it, it's been in New York and Los Angeles, but they're bringing it to Kentucky this week, and it'll be in uh, Harlan on Saturday and Whitesburg on Sunday. So most immediately, I'm wishing I could make it up there and uh, sit down with a group. You know, there's a still a, a lively group of artists around Apple Shop and artists and community workers and, you know, people doing all kinds of interesting things from independent music to murals to theater to film. And, and that, that kind of very small, but very tight knit community I miss. I mean, Boone's a great college town, but it's, you know, people move in and out quicker than, than you can pay attention to sometimes. <laughs> and I feel like there's a, there is something important about uh, some of the longevity or longer lasting relationships in a small town. Yeah. Being from Dayton and uh, having this affinity to the mountains as well, where do you call home and, and what makes it unique? What makes it home to you? Yeah, that's really complicated because, um, <laughs> I mean, to, you know, to some degree, Ohio is my home because that's, you know, where I went to high school and 
I still have, you know, pretty tight friends from, uh, particularly from my undergraduate at Ohio University there. You know, I feel like, you know, there are times when I'm not, not necessarily going to Dayton, but going to Athens, Ohio, that I feel like I'm going home. There's definitely times when I'm going to Whitesburg, well, I still own a house there so, that I built myself. So sometimes that feels going home. And yet I've got a family here. I've got, you know, a wife and a child and some sheep and chickens. And so this is, this might be the more, this is the home for now. If all goes well, we'll be home for a while. It's complicated. It's a little bit different than being in a place for generations because yeah. my parents moved to Dayton from uh, New York and Pennsylvania. So like we've been all over, you know? No, no right or wrong answer. I failed to mention, we ask all our guests that, and it's always interesting to hear, to hear the answer. Uh, and also uh, I'm surprised that Neil hasn't told you yet. He has chickens as well. I was coming to that. <laughs> he, lo- he loves to tell our guests that he has chickens. So, well, yeah. usually if it was daylight, you'd be hearing our rooster, uh, but it's oh. it's dark. So he's up. You won't hear him till about 4.30 or 5 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I feel you. I've got uh, mine, my 11-year-old wanted chickens for his birthday. So we've, we're proud chicken farmers now. <laughs> My son takes care of all of it, though, so it, it's really been a great learning experience for him. Yeah, it's been kind of a our, one of our son's projects too. Although this this summer, for the first time, we actually hatched a bunch. So okay, so we now have seven little ones that were that are up big enough to be on their own, but not big enough to lay eggs. So we'll we'll see how that works out. We'll see how many of them turn out to be roosters. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I got I got lucky. Only had one rooster in the in the batch, but. Uh, it worked out. It's all good so far. So yes. I feel like I'm left out of the conversation here. Maybe I need, maybe I need to get some chickens. You just can't do those things in Northeast Ohio. I mean, who wants chickens in Ohio? (laughs) 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 So Tom, we ask all of our guests this too. And I think you may have a very interesting answer to this just because of your past and what you currently do. But when I ask you this question, I just want to know the first thing that, that comes to your mind. So what is the first thing you think about when I say Appalachia? That's funny. Cause I actually asked my students that too. Awesome. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, you know, just, really I kind of get a vision of a mountain stream, honestly, is what, I don't know if that's exactly the right, you know, it's, that's not a single word, but you know, kind of a vision of a mountain stream with shafts of light coming down through the, yeah. You know, there's a little fog there, a little mist, maybe a little uh, rhododendron on the side or hemlock. Yeah. Yep. I love it. I love it. Great answer. Perfect answer. Yeah. Again, there's no right or wrong answer there. Um, we, we, we've no heard. right or wrong, but there's a perfect one, right? That's yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. You just nailed it. <laughs> Tom, we, we uh, greatly appreciate you uh, being on the episode. I, I guess one, one last question is there anything you know we've kind of talked about after coal quite a bit but is there anything that we've failed to mention in regards to that documentary that you would like to add or for, for those that, that haven't seen it should definitely go watch it i find it very interesting especially if you're from coal country in, in, in eastern kentucky or anywhere throughout central appalachia uh is there anything that we failed to mention or whales i, I, I appreciate that um but yeah, I think the only other thing I would mention is I kind of did the project backwards. A lot of times people will write a book and then there'd be a film that comes out based on the book. Well, I did the film and then I did a book based on the film and just wanted to make sure people know they can find that book through West Virginia University Press. 
Great. You can actually just Google after cold book and it'll pop up. Uh, The WVU press actually has done a great job at, at getting it out there and they've got an easy way to access it on their website. Since you're the expert, what, what's harder, doing the documentary or writing the book? You know, authors are going to kill me for this, but <laughs> I'm going to say doing the documentary partly because it, you know, I had to raise money, not just, you know, for the film production and, you know, getting it color corrected and getting the subtitles put in for hearing impaired and all that tens of thousands of dollars. And then there were trips to Wales that I had to raise money for that took a lot of time trips to Appalachia, you know, to Eastern Kentucky that I had to raise money for that. It wasn't as much because I could sleep on friends' couches, but, um, but it still, you know, took time. You had to raise a lot more money to uh, then writing a book. I mean, you do have to have that experience that you can write about. And so, you know, maybe in some ways I, I don't have a clear view because I had spent so much resources and so much time having that experience that the writing was still took a, a year or two to write the book. Um, but it took, you know, eight years to make the film. So, so I feel like that, that was the hard part. And the book writing was a little more clear cut because I could just sit down, just me and a, and a computer and start writing. Yeah. That's fascinating. Versus versus organizing different community groups and showing clips and, you know. I, uh, again, you know, we want to thank, thank you for being on the episode. It was, it was, it was great to hear it from the horse's mouth. And like, like I said, Neil and I love the documentary and love your work. Keep up the great work. Well, I appreciate the good words and I've had fun. Recommend your podcast to anybody. Appreciate it. We'll look you up and we're in Boone. You can uh, do it. I'll be happy rec- to see you. Recommend a good, good uh, local restaurant or yep. uh, I'll buy you a drink. I'll be glad yeah. to do that. I'm yeah. sure Neil would like to see your chickens. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We can that's swap, swap more chicken stories. <laughs> I, need to see, I need to see the chicken operation. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let me know. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. All right. Y'all be good. Tom did a great job of uh, explaining the similarities and differences between Eastern Kentucky and Wales. You know, I told you I was going to learn a lot, as I always do. But man, I mean, I kind of knew some of the stuff from his documentary, but it's unbelievable how similar you can go find a town in eastern Kentucky, like a Hazard or a Betsy Lane community, for instance, and look at some of the places he was in in Wales, and you see the similarities like firsthand. So very interesting. Yeah, and like uh, there are obvious differences anywhere you travel. There are differences in places, but dialect. It, 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 it just it just goes to show you how industry can define a culture, how industry can, you know, drive a region, uh, which it has for a long time in Eastern Kentucky and did for a long time in Wales as well. And and the similarities to that. And yeah, you're right. Just how similar they are is kind of shocking, but also interesting at the same time. Yes. Uh, totally agree. Thought Tom did a great job of explaining and, uh, I hope our listeners will reach out and look into his documentary and learn a little bit more uh, as we did tonight. Yeah, definitely. As we were talking about, you know, you can find the documentary after Cole in a few places that we describe. You can also read his book after Cole that he wrote after the fact, but um, you know what, what you do after Cole, it's not, not rocket science, but there are some intricacies. There are some things that have to be done, need to be done. And, and it's not, 
a bad thing to see what Wells is doing and take that and, and build upon it, you know, and learn from it. I mean, we've talked about a lot of things on here that are happening uh, in some Appalachian communities and that uh, you can kind of see the similarities as well. But, you know, I think, I think we can learn a lot from, from the great Brits. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's a great weekend to whip their tail in golf. And uh, <laughs> now we can learn some more from them from an industry perspective. <laughs> definitely. I thought it was a great episode. If you're interested in what you were hearing, definitely watch his documentary. It, it, it describes the people, the places even more so than, than what the episode did. I don't think it gave it, I don't think the episode quite gave it justice. So check it out, find out what's, what's going on. I, I wanted to ask you, Neil, if you were thinking during the episode, if you had anything tonight to share, of place uh you know we've talked about similarities we talked about differences but do you have anything to share i just think about those eastern kentucky towns that are dying because of the coal industry and uh, more and more people moving out of those towns and it makes me sad but i hope that this is a just a breath of fresh air for people and they can maybe grasp something from here and learn from it and all these communities throughout Eastern Kentucky don't have to die. We just have to reinvent the wheel, you know, learn from history, learn from what's happened across the pond, if you will, and uh, apply it here. That's kind of what I kept thinking about as, as we were interviewing Tom during this episode of how many of those Eastern Kentucky towns can, can change the, the path that they're currently on. And, you know, we've talked to so many people, in the last several months. And I think about all the other things that are going on, not related to coal throughout Eastern Kentucky. And I think, I think we can turn the corner. Uh, and I know there's more things out there that people can learn, learn and people can get into and invest and uh, reinvent themselves so that coal is, is not the end of Appalachia or the end of Eastern Kentucky. So, yeah, definitely. I, I, that, that's very well said. Very, very good point. I, I uh, you know, like you said, we've spoken to a lot of people who, who have talked, talked about this and, you know, they've talked about transition and transition is not a bad word. Transition is not a bad thing. It's just transition uh, out of necessity, which is what Appalachia has done through its creation. You know, we've always been resilient. We've always transitioned when we needed to and never better time than now. Yes, sir. I totally agree. All right. Uh, like I usually say, we can, we can probably end it on this. Um, Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong I'm in the mountains